Hello and welcome to the Reorg Europe podcast. It's Wednesday, January the 25th. I'm Caterina Dassier, staff writer in Reorg's London office. And today I'm going to be speaking to senior legal analyst Jamie McDougall, deputy editor Aurelia Seidhofer and senior legal reporter Connor Lovell about German real estate company Adler. The group announced that he had reached an agreement with most of its senior unsecured fixed-rate note holders that will allow it to carry out an English law Part 26a plan to implement its restructuring agreement. Today, we'll talk about the events leading up to the plan announcement, what the restructuring hopes to achieve, and finally, what a plan might look like considering class composition and cross-class cramdown. Javrelia, could you briefly explain how the story with uh, Adler started? Hi, Katrina. Yeah, sure. So we at Reorg uh, first started looking into Adler more closely in August 2021, so quite some time ago. And at the time, the bonds were quite volatile and people already raised concerns about material adjustments to LTV, the valuation of its development portfolio. And of course, there were all these rumors about an Austrian businessman called Seftet Kana, who was supposedly um, managing Adler behind the scenes. Um, and then um, we, we actually published something before Viceroy came out with their short seller report in October. And they said that the company has artificially inflated its balance sheet uh, because the residential and development portfolio was valued too high. And they also questioned corporate governance, especially around uh, a transaction which became known as the Gerisheim transaction or Glasmacherviertel. And they said that this was not um, on normal commercial to- um, terms. They also said that about some other transactions, but that these were, in short, maybe uh, the main allegations made against the company. Yeah, I remember that. So what happened in the following months that led to the company agreeing to a restructuring transaction with an ad hoc uh, group? Yeah, so um, after the short seller report was published, um, the company, of course, tried to defend itself and tried to rebuff the allegations. And actually, um, Seftet Kana himself also went to great lengths to say that he was just acting as a minority shareholder via his family foundation and wasn't some sort of mastermind behind the business. Um, I think he also... um, tried to file a lawsuit against uh, Viceroy in the end. And at that time, investors, of course, started taking a close look at the company. Some even traveled to Germany to verify the existence of you know, these buildings. Um, but in the end, these discussions were quite difficult because by nature, as you can imagine, valuations of real estate assets are quite tricky. Um, it's not, not super liquid, so they're not constantly transactions. And especially if you look at um, stuff that is still being built, it becomes very difficult. So there were a lot of different opinions in the market with some people feeling quite relaxed about the bonds definitely being covered by the assets and others saying, I'm not getting involved in this. Um, There are too many red flags, especially about corporate governance. And then 
the company obviously had to kind of deal with that situation and they started um, selling some assets to safeguard liquidity. Um, they said uh, that all the valuations were done by third parties. And then they also actually hired uh, KPMG, who is also the auditor for a special forensic audit uh, to kind of rebuff these allegations made by the short sellers. And um, even the German regulator Barfin kind of started looking into the company's affairs. But things kind of... They didn't really, um, all of these things were kind of more negative in the end overall. So KPNG published um, this uh, special audit report um, in April 2022. And in some ways it was a bit disappointing for investors because while broadly they said uh, the valuation of the rental portfolio is um, correct, it said that there should be a discount um, applied to the development portfolio and the problem was also that KPMG couldn't refute some of the allegations, like um, what I mentioned before about the Garrison transactions. They said that the, the sales price seems to be excessive. And they also couldn't refute these allegations that Sefted Kana was kind of secretly controlling the affairs of the company. And I mentioned before that Barfin, uh, so the regulator, was also looking into that. And they later announced that they thought that the 2019 financial um, statements of the company contained mistakes. So all of this kind of um, didn't really help the company's case um, to defend itself against the, um, the allegations and to shore up trust among investors. So from that point onwards, things started looking more negative? Yeah, so basically after that, there were just more and more blows to the company in a way. The KPMG then also issued a disclaimer of opinion on the 2021 financial statements and later resigned as the auditor. And the company then really struggled to find a different auditor, which then sparked concerns that there could be an event of default in spring 2023 because the company wouldn't have been able to deliver audited financial statements. Um, in, they still haven't resolved this, actually, so they're still looking for an auditor. <laughs> they tried to um, get a court to appoint one, uh, which appointed KPMG again, actually, but they refused, so we still haven't resolved this. And then bondholders started to organize in late spring of 2022 and in the summer, kind of, uh, well, basically trying to get the company to, you know, engage with them to address upcoming maturities in 2023. And what happened next was that um, obviously with the, the market, the primary market for um, bonds becoming much more difficult with higher interest rates and so on, um, the company just became more and more in a position where it was difficult to secure additional liquidity. It was kind of pinning hopes on uh, a real estate company called LEG to exercise a call option for um, a stake in the Adler subsidiary Brack Properties, or BCP. But that kind of uh, went through, uh, didn't, uh, so it didn't happen. And in the real estate market itself, uh, kind of really um, dried up and became frozen And the second half of 2022. So Adler itself said that there were no, you know, meaningful large transactions in the third quarter, 2022, for example. And so it was very difficult for them to sell assets. And 
if even if you look at the last um, sale that they did, which was in early January, with um, they they sold a Brack Properties asset, and you can see that it was actually done at a twenty percent discount to book value. So. You know, it's just selling assets kind of um, wasn't an option anymore to address the maturities. So um, at that point, the company basically had no other choice than to sit down with bondholders and agree on a restructuring transaction. And they announced this at the end of November. And I think my colleague Jamie will now go into the details about what that contained. Thanks, Aurelia. Now to Jamie. Jamie, in short... What was Adler trying to do? Well, Adler's main aims were to restructure its balance sheet and to deal with liquidity requirements. This included addressing the repayment of one of its subsidiaries, Adler Real Estate's 500 million notes maturing in April, which is in three months' time, and 300 million of notes due in February 2024. Uh, obviously, the main way companies address refinancing and liquidity issues is to incur more debt and extend their debt maturities. Uh, but Adler couldn't incur more debt within the confines of the debt covenants of its 3.2 billion of unsecured notes, maturing between 2024 and 2029. And to extend maturity dates, clearly you need to get the required consents from the relevant noteholders. Um, as for incurring new debt, the debt covenants for all the notes are pretty much the same and require compliance with ratio tests on incurrence. Adler would not have been able to satisfy the interest coverage and unencumbered assets ratio tests if it incurred new debt. So the obvious solution, go out and agree consensual amendments to the notes covenants with its note holders according to the amendment provisions of the notes. But Adler had a bit of a job on its hands to do, given the red flags surrounding the business as alleged by Viceroy in its report and the controversy surrounding its auditor's resignation and other things, but the plan he came up with was acceptable to a large majority of note holders, even if it didn't fill them with an unbridled confidence for the future. And Jamie, could you summarise what was an offer and what made it an acceptable deal to many note holders and a bad deal for others? Sure, but uh, just to say that Adler needed 75% or more by value of acceptances to its plan from each of the six series of notes. And it achieved this for its notes maturing between 2024 and 2027, but the 2027s just by 2%. Um, in fact, over 75% of note holders under three series of notes had already agreed to the amendments before the consent solicitations were sent out, which may not surprise anyone when we come to discuss what was on offer for the early maturing notes. The pesky minority that put the spanner in the works for Adler were the notes maturing in 2029, where only 54% of the note holders voted for the amendments. So let's look at what was on offer. Yes, the, the offer was packed with uh, delectable details for note holders, such as a juicy 12.5% interest rate on new money and tighter covenants, was it not? Uh, well, if not delectable, then palatable. And uh, yes, there were quite a few features to entice the note holders. So upping the interest rates is often on the menu in restructurings. And as you say, it's 12.5% on 937.5 million of new loans and a 2.75% bump up of the interest rate on all of the notes until mid-2025. And the new notes will be secured on shares, land and buildings and other assets. 
To address liquidity issues, Adler wanted to suspend interest payments on the notes until July 2025, and to address capital structures, share issues, it would reduce debt, mostly the 800 million of notes maturing in 2023 and 2024 at the Adler real estate level. So 2025 is looking like a big year for Adler under its proposals. Yeah, it's basically kicking the can down the road until 2025. So no interest payments on the notes until June 2025. Adler wanted the notes due in 2024 to mature in 2025. The listed notes due in 2025 will still mature in August 2025 and the 937.5 million of new debt would mature in June 2025. So that's a lot of debt to address in 2025, as well as, according to our calculations at the time of the consensus station, about 431 million of interest to pay. But to help no holders get over the line, there were consent fees on offer, and Adler was also offering up a new restriction on payment to shareholders, a debt basket of 150 million euros to replace the ratio tests and a better negative pledge, and an 87.5% loan-to-value financial covenant beginning from December 31st, 2024, and another few other things as well. So, incur more debt, pay some off and have a clear runaway until 2025, increase notholders' yield, and give notholders better covenants. But the new 900 million plus loan was to receive first priority liens over assets. Why would the note holders agree to be primed by such a large amount? Uh, well, it was more than that, as a substantial amount of other debt was placed before them in the queue for security as well. Uh, but we'll come to that later. Um, an important coercion dynamic here was that the note holders were being offered to be lenders in this new first priority secured loan. Uh, and we assume that was on a pro rata basis with their note holdings, so we don't know for sure. Uh, so it wasn't a case of new creditors coming in to prime them. Note holders would get to be involved in a much more secure financing to Adler with first recourse to assets. And if they didn't accept, then we assume other note holders, including the locked-in ones who had agreed to the amendments before the consensus solicitation, um, would be ready and willing to be lenders in their place and prime them in the process. So, Jamie, who were the other creditors being offered recourse uh, to the security package after the lenders, but before the note holders? And why do you think this was the case? So, second in the queue for claims on the security were the 400 million of notes due in 2024, uh, 24.5 million of loan notes, and 165 million of convertible notes due in 2023. Ranking above the other note holders may have been the thing to make them agree to give up their more comfortable, soon-to-be-repaid-at-par status, uh, although I can't remember when the loan notes were actually due, uh, and that would ease up on Adler's liquidity needs. Presumably, Adler was hoping the other note holders wouldn't mind the second lien, given the other things on offer, including also being first lien under the loan, uh, and the second lien debt being repayable soon anyway. Um, another dynamic in the background was Adler's threat that they could do all this anyway through an English or German court process. So note holders might as well make it less painful for themselves and agree now. Um, well, that's always a coercion dynamic in these situations. Entice most of the creditors to agree and say to the holdouts that they'll be forced into a new debt structure by a court anyway using a cram down mechanism. But the court process isn't a simple rubber stamping of a plan proposed by the borrowing group, which Connor is just about to come on and describe in more detail.
And investors may have cross holdings in the various uh, series of notes, which may have played a part on whether they voted their notes for the amendments or not. Yeah, it's sort of not known how much a feature this is in restructurings. Um, what is interesting is that 34% of the 2029 note holders said before the votes were counted that they would not be agreeing, perhaps as part of an effort to gain concessions from Adler despite its threat to do it all anyway through a court process. Um, but nothing came of it. And here we are with the whole thing now going to the English court. Thank you. Connor, now we know the group is going to pursue an English process, the Part 26A. Can you talk us through what to expect? So what is the 26A and what are the class composition, constant threshold, and how could classes be decided? Sure. Um, so the Part 26A restructuring plan was introduced in 2020. It's UK's tried and tested restructuring tool. Um, it builds on the case law for schemes of arrangement and includes the provision for cross-class cramdown, which is always a mouthful, for the first time. Since the RP shares much of its DNA with the scheme, the voting thresholds are basically identical. Um, in order to pass, the company will need 75% of creditors by value in each class to agree to the proposal. Um, in simple terms, there will be two hearings, uh, a convening hearing and a sanction hearing. We uh, will we'll report on both. Um, once the sanction is passed, any amendments made by the plan will become effective. So due to the results of the consensus solicitation, which we know, and assuming that the company places each tranche of debt in its own class, Adler can be pretty sure that it's going to reach the 75% threshold um, for the 24, 25, 26 and 27s, um, because uh, consent was well above 80% for each of these. The exception, of course, is the 2029 notes, where they, they didn't meet the threshold, but also the 2027 notes, where uh, consent was 77%, so just above that threshold. Um, so that, you know, it's not inconceivable that that could change. So the company itself is free to decide how to best split creditors into each of the classes, but broadly speaking, classes are composed with reference to the creditors' existing rights before the plan, and then the proposed rights under the structuring plan. Um, lawyers tend to call that rights in, rights out. Um, however, if, as expected, Adler wishes to cram down the 2029 notes, there are some additional considerations. Okay, so what are the tests for cram down and how could uh, the restructuring plan be challenged? Okay, uh, to cram down a dissenting class, the legislation provides for two gateway conditions. First of all, uh, it's known as condition A, and that is that one of the members of the dissenting class um, uh, would be worse off uh, then they would be, uh, they wouldn't be worse off than they would be in the relevant alternative. And the relevant alternative is whatever the court considers would be most likely to occur if the plan wasn't sanctioned. Typically, that's an insolvency, um, but sometimes it, it can be other things. Um, if if they say it's an insolvency, uh, the company will have to provide evidence for that. Secondly, um, as condition B. Adler will have to have the consent of at least one quote in the money class of creditors. Uh, this has implications for class composition and indicates that there will be at least two classes if the 2029s are to be crammed down, but in my personal view, there could well be six um, if the 2029s are included in the plan. If these two conditions are met, the court has a general discretion to sanction a plan. However, that's not absolutely automatic. The court can, will consider the overall fairness of the plan in the round. Um, if the plan is to be challenged um, on that point you raised, uh, 
at the sanction hearing, the creditor has a number of you know, avenues they can pursue. I mean, firstly, they could argue that conditions A and B are not met. Uh, for instance, that the relevant alternative uh, advanced by the company isn't correct. Um, or they could argue on a valuation point that dissenting classes are not, in fact, out of the money. Um, a creditor is free to, to advance any argument that it believes is a blot on the overall fairness of the plan, um, such as being given in incomplete information or the uh, proposal is grossly confiscatory or it won't be effective for a particular reason. Um, creditors can launch a challenge in court at the convening or sanction, so we'll be watching out for that at both hearings. And uh, since this is a German company using a UK process, do you think there could be any issues with the German courts recognizing the plan? I mean, that's a good question, and, and it is a possibility. Um, since Brexit, some German companies like Low and Play uh, have used English tools, they used a scheme, and that passed without any recognition issues. Um, Adler's lockup agreement contained provisions to submit to the jurisdiction uh, of the English court. Uh, they also switched the issuer of the notes to a company in England and Wales, which will help them meet the jurisdictional requirements um, for a foreign company using an English tool. Uh, a greater recognition, uh, a greater hurdle, sorry, for recognition purposes is whether the governing law of the unsecured bonds has been changed from German law to English law. If this is done, the English court will be quite confident that a German court will recognise the plan. Um, as a rule of thumb, courts are usually content to recognise foreign courts discharging the debt uh, of the same governing law as the court in question. Uh, so English law for English law, German law for German law. Um, so on that point, we're not sure whether they have switched that yet, um, but we will find out soon. Thank you, Honor. Thank you. We would like to hear your feedback to help us improve the podcast experience. So please take a moment to complete the short survey at the link attached to this podcast and let us know how we're doing. More information on all the situation and events discussed in this podcast are available on our website, reorg.com. We hope you can join us next week for another Reorg Europe podcast. Until then, have a great week and thank you very much for listening. Thank mm-hmm. you.